Today, we meet Dr. Fernanda Adame. From watching National Geographic as a child, Fernanda went on to get a degree in biology, a master's in the study of inland aquatic ecosystems and oceanography, and a PhD in marine sciences. She is now an internationally recognized authority on mangrove and wetland conservation. We also chat about helicopter research and the critical importance of engaging with local stakeholders in research projects. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short, and you're listening to Women in Science, a podcast series from the University of Queensland. I'm delighted to be here with Fernanda Adame. Fernanda, you are from Mexico originally. Can you talk to me a little bit about how your career in science was fostered and, and how it was perceived when you were growing up? It was somehow odd that I uh, decided to be like an environmental scientist, but somehow not. My dad is an academic, but he works um, in law and um, philosophy. So he did work at the university, but there's no other like environmental scientist or any really adventurous or very keen on field activities in my house. But I remember watching this episode of National Geographic when I was growing up. That was kind of the new thing. Mm -hmm. And I could see like the explorers walking around in Africa with the elephants. I was like about seven years old. And I said, that's what I want to do when I grow up. So then I realized that what you had to do was study biology. So that's what I did. And then I always had this thing for Australia. I was imagining it's like this wild, beautiful place. So when but I, no elephants. But no elephants. Yeah, <laughs> no elephants. So I decided to come to do my PhD in 2005. And then I've just kind of stayed here since then. Amazing. And so how did you find that process of going from, I'm enjoying my bachelor's degree, I'm enjoying the research, to deciding to do a PhD? I guess for me, it was always like a natural progression. I wanted to be in the National Geographic. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, uh, and I knew I had to do a PhD. So mm -hmm. it was just kind of natural for me. I always knew that that's what I wanted to do. And was the appeal of Australia just the sheer landscape? Or was there something there that you thought there's a particular area of science and environmentalism that I'd like to explore? Well, I guess Australia it had a good reputation for being good in environmental sciences. And it's one of the few countries that are developed country that's in the tropics. Mm. So that's also that's important because it was the choices where they're going to the U.S., going to Europe or Australia. So it just Australia seemed a lot more appealing. Mm, better weather. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so you finished your PhD. And what was next? Going on to postdoc? Yeah, so I started working in Mexico. I got a fellowship and I worked there in the Caribbean for a couple of years. And then um, I got an offer a position at Griffith University, which is where I'm still working on. Mm -hmm. And I stay there since then. And how did you find that moving between countries? Because that's a pretty big shift to go from Mexico to Australia and then back to Mexico. I actually enjoyed a lot. I love being able to do both things, like mm -hmm. to leave between countries because I have a lot of projects in Mexico. So I'm always working with people with Mexico and doing collaborations between Australia and Mexico. And I actually find that really fulfilling. So I kind of get the best of both countries. Yeah. And you didn't face any any problems in terms of reestablishing yourself in, in either country? No, I find Australians, I don't know, very akin to my own values. So I mm -hmm. find it really easy to make friends here. So... I don't have a no. It was just being really easy. 
That's fantastic. That's what we want to hear. (laughs) Yeah. I'd love to hear more about your research. And I think what's fascinating is that you're working between local communities, government agencies, and, and working across a wide variety of stakeholders. So can you talk to me a little bit about that and what your pet project is now at the moment? Yes. So I guess one of the things you realize when you're doing science is that every scientist wants to make sure that their science is helpful. Mm. And I think that's one of the dreams of everyone that does environmental science. You fall in love with whatever you're studying, whatever environment, and you want to make a difference. But the only way to make this difference is to engage with a lot of people and asking them what exactly is what you need, what questions you need to be answered. I've learned this throughout my career, so I always make sure before I start any project, I engage with everyone, state government, traditional owners, other indigenous communities, NGOs, sugarcane farmers, everyone. Not just do the science, but also do the engagement from the planning of the project all the way to the delivery of the results to make sure whatever we're doing as a scientist is helpful. And so what sort of, if you're talking to other researchers who are doing this sort of multi-stakeholder process, what sort of advice would you offer? Well, to make sure you talk with everyone before you start your project and not just do something that you think is helpful. Because Mm. there's hundreds of papers saying, oh, you should do this. Oh, you should look after the elephants. You know what? Oh, you should look better at the Great Barrier Reef. But that's really not enough. Like people in the government, they don't sit, you know, on Friday afternoons and read the papers that we write. That doesn't happen. Really? They don't? They don't. (laughs) I'm sorry to tell you no one reads your papers. Disappointing. I know. So unless you are in the process of, you know, whatever is happening at that moment, if you're not really embedded with it, then you're, you're not really making a difference. So I guess following on from that, you've sort of talked a little bit about helicopter research. Could you talk to me about that, what that means and, and what your principles as a researcher are like? Yeah, so this is something really interesting that just occurred to me like two years ago. I didn't know it had a name. I've experienced it, but I didn't know it had a name, but I experienced it a lot in Mexico. And helicopter research It's the name that's been given to the practice of scientists from developed country going to a developing nations, doing some science, you know, and then going back without leaving anything behind. Mm. And I started reading a little bit about this. And it's really interesting because it turns out that this is not a recent thing. It started with Darwin. Darwin was the first helicopter scientist which went around the world, did this amazing research, you know, took samples from everywhere, came back, wrote the original species and, you know, numbers of publications and never, ever mentioned any of the people that were living in Americas. Mm-hmm. And there's examples starting from Darwin, all the explorers of that area, that's what they were doing. And it's kind of stayed as a normal practice. Even me growing up when I was in Mexico, it was kind of normal to see American scientists European scientists going to Mexico, having this amazing adventure in the developing world, you know, going to the rainforest and doing the Mayan architecture and everything. And and then just getting all the publications and ever really including people as part of their project. They were more like, you're helping me going around, you're helping me translate, but you don't deserve to be author. You don't really deserve mm-hmm. to be a leader of the project. So when I started to realized that this was actually a thing and it was like very there's lots of papers showing how this was really pervasive in all areas of environmental science and and not just environmental science I mean I work in the field of virology and we we see the same thing that people come in do a lot of surveys and then publish these big papers without acknowledging the local authors who are contributing to that yeah so I think yeah I think it's just normal practice but 
we're finally being called out. And he was saying, okay, this is not okay. Mm. And me coming maybe from with money from Australia to do research, going to Mexico, I make sure I don't make those mistakes. So do you have a list or rules that you follow in terms of collaborations and, and working with local communities? The first one, as I say, is make sure you know who's working there. Mm-hmm. And importantly is... You have to acknowledge that these people have knowledge, Mm. that it might not be what is traditionally considered as like a scientific knowledge, but that knowledge is essential for you to do your work. It should be rewarded. And it's not about being condescending and being like, oh, here we're helping the poor Mexicans. No, it's about really respecting that there's lots of people, lots of research happening there. We just have to acknowledge it that it is as important as what we do in the field. So talk to me a little bit about your research. Tell me really what to date your most exciting discovery is or the most exciting project you've taken on. A lot of my research is focused on two areas, which is carbon and nitrogen. Mm -hmm. And this may sound a bit boring in the beginning because it's really biogeochemistry. But I got into it because it has a lot of implications for management and restoration. Because now we've had the carbon markets, you know, like you've heard Mm -hmm. about, you know, how Australia has been pressured to do something about reducing the emissions. And one way to do that is restoring and protecting wetlands because they're very rich in carbon. So by protecting them, you reduce your emissions from land use. And then you have the nitrogen offsets. You've also probably heard in the news a lot of problems with the Great Barrier Reef. They have the poor water quality. How do we improve the water quality? So another of the reasons is you can build wetlands, you can restore wetlands and reduce the nitrogen that gets to the Great Barrier Reef. So that's the, my two main areas. So I do a lot of biogeochemistry, ecology studies, but they're all aimed at informing how to restore and protect wetlands. So can I ask a big question? I think a lot of people listening to stories about climate change and about the future are rightfully very concerned and in particular concerned for the next generation. So what do you see in terms of Australia's environmental environment as the future? Do you think restoring wetlands is the way that we're going to go and one way that we're going to reduce our environmental impact? I think it's clear that that's not enough. The first thing you have to do is just stop emitting. They've put a lot of money now into restoration of forests, which is great. It's very important to have this part of the emissions to be offset by improved land management, by savanna burning, by Aboriginal people. All of these things are amazing because they don't only recover our ecosystems, they also have a lot of social, economical and ecological benefits. But the truth, the reality is that those are minor components. They're probably like 15% mm. of what the emissions are. They are really just coal. So the wetlands can offset some of those emissions and can provide all these other benefits. But really, fossil fuels is the main contributor of CO2. So do you feel positive? I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you feel positive about the future or are you concerned? I'm feeling positive because there's a lot of, there's dozens now of restoration programs in Australia. And I've get emails very, you know, every couple of months and someone, oh, we're restoring this other wetland. Oh, we're doing this other project. We just developed the methodology to get payments for restoring mangroves in Australia. So there's lots of opportunities. And I think at the end of the day, renewable energies are cheaper. Mm. So that's what gives me the hope because even if people Driven are greedy, economics. even if they're greedy, if they, they think that we're hippies, environmental, it doesn't matter. It's just cheaper. Mm. So I think uh, sooner or later, and it's going to happen. And the push from everyone to reduce emissions is just going to get stronger and stronger. 
Mm, that makes me feel a little bit better about the future. So thank you. <laughs> and when you're engaging with all these communities, you obviously have to take a quite strong leadership role. How have you found yourself settling into that leadership position and, and have you found that challenging? I think it's important just to, when you engage with people, to listen to them mm. and to just find out what do they need? Just take the time to that extra bit of time to know them as persons, see what they like, see, you know, what motivates them to do what they do. And those things will give you that extra connection with the person and they will really appreciate that. So that's what I've noticed, that people that you work with, that they feel valued and they feel that they trust you. That's very important when you build relationships. That will give you the respect of just not your work, but also as a person. I love that. Your your approach to research is, is very much about building long-term, collaborative, integrative relationships rather than, as you say, this sort of helicopter research idea yeah. or fly in, fly out. I'm going to move now to our sort of rapid fire questions. Yeah. Don't worry, they don't have to be ra- that rapid, <laughs> so don't stress. Could you tell us which woman or women have been the biggest influence in, in terms of your professional career? I've been thinking about this question and I've come up with three. So the first one was my grandma because she was always such a strong woman. She had eight kids. She was about probably in her early 30s or late 20s when my grandfather abandoned her, which is something that it seems like crazily common by that generation in Mexico. The women, Mm. the father's just leaving them and finding a younger wife. She was always so strong and so brave she never, ever complained. And I was always admire her for that. Mm. Yeah, so I think she... And so she raised eight kids. <laughs> she raised eight kids by herself. Gosh, it puts, it puts modern living in perspective, doesn't it? I know, and she had no qualifications because she was never allowed to go to university. I mean, I can't even imagine that situation, but all until the last day, she died when she was 97. Wow. She used to say, when we were like trying to lift her up or like take her out of the car, she would say, don't help me now because otherwise you'll help me forever. <laughs> so she was always... Um, yeah, really tough, but really lovely. And yeah, so she was a very good example for me. And who were the other two? The other two. Okay, so my mom, you can see in history how we've kind of come a long way as women. Yeah. <laughs> and she did have a career. She did go to university, uh, but she was in a lot of ways a housewife. But she always wanted to have her career and have her, th- her own thing. She didn't want to be completely dependent on my dad. So she always had a list like shop that I remember I worked since I was a little kid. And the shop kind of moved from being like shop when they were like develop photography, you know, when we had to develop like the yeah, back photography in the back yep. in the days. And then they will sell like yarn and we'll do knitting classes mm-hmm. and then she'll sell like kids clothes and it became a laundry. It was a lot of things, but I was always, I was always very proud of her for that mm. because she was always kept that part of herself, like trying to be independent in her own way. So now I feel there's a lot of pressure on the third person. So the third person only had one kid. <laughs> so it's, but it was my PhD supervisor. It's mm-hmm. actually a professor from UQ. Since she was my supervisor, I've worked with her. Half of my publications are with her. Like half of my projects still with her. She had a family. When I was her PhD student, she was a mother of two young kids. Mm. And she's just always been not just amazing as a scientist, but it's also she's really compassionate and really... I don't know, she inspired me a lot to be what I expect to be Mm. as a scientist and as a mother as well. I think sometimes we underestimate the impact that these sort of mentors have on our lives at our peril because it's just all the research we do and everything like that, it can have such a profound 
effect on our future. Yeah, and sometimes you don't notice until you sit down and you, know, you start to think about it and you're like, yeah. oh, yeah, this was very helpful. Tell me if you've experienced any sort of obstacles that relate to your gender throughout your career or anything that you sort of reflect upon. Well, yeah, one thing that I, I've, I've noticed now, because it's just now that it's being kind of called out that it's the wrong thing to do, is like sexual harassment mm. and it's just so prevalent in Mexico I can't remember one day that I didn't go out to the streets and I wasn't like how does it called cat cold yeah and grabbed and pulled and tall and you know sometimes they were like inoffensive things like oh you look very pretty today to sometimes they were like you know I don't want to say it yeah you know like just it was just constant and I was always upset about it and I was really feisty when I was I'm still really feisty and I'll be like always like what do you want to say you say it to my face and yeah, I was always yeah. like fighting with people on the streets and it's just now that I realize how wrong that was mm. still even like going to conferences or like things at university they will still like try to grab you and you know hold your waist and come here and show me your poster you know you really wanted to like show some of your graph and then you know in those days and you know it was kind of normal they would say oh don't pretend that you don't like it you know like women like this and it was like yeah mm, don't so, know who you've been talking I know. <laughs> and you didn't even know like girls even know that it was wrong you know hmm. but so I think that was something that I've been thinking about that was really wrong. And even um, when I was growing up, I'm more like having kids and stuff. The one thing that it's always is like when I go back to Mexico, is there always the expectation that I should be looking after my son and I should be supporting my husband. Mm. So I'm always the bad mother mm. that just win. works to more. Yeah. yeah. And, and my husband is always the best dad because he does more than what other dads do. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I always get that. The expectation is still different. Yeah. And I guess the final question that I have for you, what's the best piece of advice that you've received or what would you like to pass on to the next generation? Yes, so I do have advice that also something that I've been thinking recently. There's a lot of opportunities now, I think, for women. There's a lot of fellowships, opportunities to give presentations, to give seminars. Like now I'm here talking about my story, what, you know, 20 years ago nobody would care. So there's lots of opportunities, but there's some women might be a bit hesitant saying like, oh, I don't want to get that fellowship because it's only for women or mm. I don't want to get that award just to tick the box. But I say, you know, just take it. Mm. You know, we given these opportunities now. I think it's good that we're fighting, that we're saying what we don't like. Mm. But it's sometimes we have to stop and just not being the victims and say, oh, yeah, they're offering me this keynote. Yeah, I'm going to take it and I'm mm. going to do amazing. And women for generations have fought for that opportunity that we get offered. That's how, how I sort of see it. So it's respecting, yeah. respecting the process. Yeah, exactly. So don't let your ego kind of get in the way. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. I really enjoyed it too. You've been listening to Women in Science, a podcast series from the University of Queensland. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Dr. Marlous Decker and Dr. Marina Fortes. Technical production is by Daniel Seed. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short. Thanks for listening.